0: Hi, everyone. I'm Nikki Oganaki, digital director of Harper's Bazaar. And I'm her sister, veteran journalist, Lolo Gunaike. And this is Well Suited, our fashion podcast that takes a fun and freewheeling deep dive into the minds of the most stylish people on the planet. We're talking about their fondest fashion memories their personal style, and how they dress for life's most important occasions. We're also
1: chatting about their remarkable careers and their lives on the grand cultural stage.
0: Today on the podcast, we're speaking with Jeremy O'Harris. Oh, yes. GQ Magazine calls him fashion's favorite playwright, and he set Broadway on fire with Slave Play, his brilliant and controversial masterpiece, which recently racked up 12 Tony nominations. Yes, that is 12. Tony nominations, the most ever for a single production. He puts the multi in multi it. <laughs>
1: He's a director,
0: producer,
1: activist, model, and muse for the likes of Gucci's Alessandro Michele and Tom Brown. And he released his very own fashion capsule collection in 2020. How does he do it all? We don't know, but we're about <laughs> to find out. Jeremy O'Harris, welcome to Well Suited. Oh
2: my God, thank you all so much for having me. I feel like that was the perfect um, intro because it allowed me to get from my Uber up three flights of stairs into my apartment and seated at my desk. That was genius.
0: <laughs> we stuck <stopped> the landing. <laughs> you yeah. know, we
1: like to time them all we that did way. It,
2: <laughs>
0: So, Jeremy, we are so happy to have you here. Nikki and I have had such a good time writing this script. We have so many questions. I mean, this could go on for hours, but we know you have a limited amount of time. So thank you for squeezing us gals in. We like to start every episode of the podcast by asking who were your style inspirations growing up?
2: Oh, my God. There were so many. I um, grew up really just sort of like in awe of anyone or anything expressive. And like, I grew up in the South. So, um, colors were like a big part of, um, the dress up time that adults had around me. Right. Um, because, you know, most of the people in my family are factory workers. Um, they worked in furniture. Like, I'm from Martinsville, Virginia. So it's a big furniture town. Yeah. So people wore like drab workmen blues and denim throughout the week. Um, and then, um, when it was time for church on Sunday, people brought out, like, you know, yellows and pinks and, uh, like, you know, pastels and all these crazy, like, uh, expressive colors. And I think that, I was really enthralled, especially by the women's wear, Mm -hmm. um, because I didn't love this cut of the men's suits. I think there was something about, like, how boxy they all were that kind of never never felt like it was for me. Mm -hmm. But I was really obsessed with, like, the ways in which uh, people accessorized their hair and how they had, like, how they had all these, like, different types of hats to match, like, perfectly with everything they wore on a Sunday. And then I think that, you know, when I went, when I started going to, high school it became a thing that uh you know everyone wanted to wear Abercrombie and Fitch um like or dress like they were in like a like Dooney and Burke or Vera Bradley ad like that was the kind of high school I went to it was really really dark and I had discovered <laughs> um independent cinema and European films and um I also was broke so I started finding out how to dress like the men in like true faux films like high-waisted pants and like really nice um, uh, button-down shirts because also that I had a dress code at my school so I learned how to dress within the dress code but through the lens of like um, French new wave cinema and that Uh, And that took me to places like Goodwill and all these different thrift stores where I could figure out how to mix mix and match things. And I think that's kind of where my, my real love of like styling myself came from.
0: What did your classmates make of your style back then?
2: First of all, they just, like, they are, they ingested it as mainly just poor. Um, and again, like, when I look back at pictures of myself, I'm like, oh, yeah, like, that was, like, the grody version of what you were going for. But, like, great attempt. The silhouette <laughs> is there, you know. Um, but it was, like, the bargain bin version of everything. And I, so I think they just, like, were like, oh, Jeremy's broke, um, period, you know. And But also, I was kind of always um, an iconoclast. Like, I sort of prided myself on being different and separate and that sort of um that sense of individuality I think protected me in some ways and the way it worked in my school was that like you know most people were wildly conservative like hardcore Bush voters like this is Bush years no none of us could vote but their parents had voted for Bush and so we, they were all like I'm with Bush gotcha. and I was you know one of the small minorities of like not only minorities but also of um, liberals in our school and the way it sort of shook out my year was that the seniors when i was a freshman were all sexy cool liberals like they were like we believe in abortion and i took like
0: what
2: (laughs) (laughs) i took um i took a class that most seniors don't most seniors take it's like it's not a class for first years and i took it because i wanted to just get it out of the way and like um challenge myself and in that class, there was a guy named Grant Woolard, who I think, um, who, who looked like Louis Gorel in The Dreamers. So I was immediately obsessed with him. <laughs> oh, and yes! sort of took a shine to me and my style and my politics. And they really welcomed me in. And so I think that being this iconoclast in my grade, who was also sort of protected by the seniors allowed me to have this sort of race for the rest of my time in school, where people were like, well, Jeremy's weird, but those cool seniors always liked him, so maybe he should be in the popular crowd because of that weird star he got.
0: Wow. Ooh. Nikki, we're off to a great start, aren't we?
1: I know. I'm like, (laughs)
2: this is amazing. We are off to the races.
1: I love it. We're also both from Virginia, Jeremy, so we understand the concept of, you know, a little drab sort of Abercrombie and Fitch.
2: Where were you in
1: Virginia? We're from Northern Virginia, so Springfield right outside of DC.
2: Wow. Oh my god. And what was it like growing up there? You, are you where 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 is your family from? Are you from were you like all Virginians or were you all immigrants from somewhere?
0: No, we are Virginians by way of Lagos, Nigeria. So oh. <laughs> So, yes, we're first generation. Yeah, first generation. Um, Nigerian Americans and Northern Virginia was sort of a huge melting pot so we grew up around Vietnamese people Pakistanis I mean Chinese people the uh, Ethiopians there's a huge Ethiopian community in the DC area the list goes on and on so
1: but I would have killed for like an Abercrombie and Fitch sweatshirt for sure
2: (laughs) yes what did your parents (laughs) think of Abercrombie and Fitch were they into it were they like absolutely no way
1: absolutely no way (laughs) (laughs) they were like "Mm, nice try (laughs) but it's not about me it's about you so jeremy i must ask who is currently the best dressed person in your life
2: janixa bravo tell us more i say that without hesitation or pause she is the best dressed person in my life i was so excited that essence just did a whole like feature on her where you saw her style but i think that like if they put Greta Gerwig on the cover of Vogue like twice now, I think, then like Janixa is due like as soon as Zola comes out. Like I want to see Janixa showing people this sort of Diane Keaton, menswear as womenswear, like uh, sort of uh, image of womanhood and femininity and softness that I think is so rarely portrayed in sort of our major fashion magazines.
0: Okay. We love your Instagram account. I mean, we love it because it's so clear that you have a deep and abiding love for fashion. And you recently posted a visual mixtape celebrating Prabal Gurung's latest collection. Why did the Prabal show speak to you?
2: I mean, I think one of the things I loved about Prabal since I first started watching the shows that he was doing is um, I think that it's very difficult for people to embrace a politic without it feeling cheesy, right? without it feeling put upon or like, you know, because at the end of the day, you're selling clothes. So you can't sell a a politic with that, right? Right. Um, But I feel like there's a way in which he does it all that makes it all feel so integrated into both his aesthetics and the way he sees the world in this really clear um, and succinct way that makes you just want to stand up and cheer and like be excited about clothes. And I think that, you know, in this moment of uh, reclusion, solid, uh, uh, you know, solitary confinement and, like, sort of just, like, research that we've all been in. Because I've taken this time to not create, but to, like, um, ingest again mm-hmm. and to revisit. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, I think him doing this show that was so romantic and about, like, self-love, but also thinking about and pondering Wong Kar sort of, like, reminded me of the hours I spent, like like picking different queer classics to watch on Criterion channel quick like discovering Camille Billups on Criterion channel and deciding that like I wanted to create a new you know visual aesthetic based on the this cinematic work that was almost lost to the world and I think him bringing those sort of like images back from um both like You know, the the Asian Pacific Islander sort of like a lens of of cinema Um, and also thinking about his queerness and uh, how that might live inside of um, textures, fabrics and colors was like it like it turned me on and it made me want to think about my own relationship to love and being alone. And so I wanted to write a little piece about it.
1: I love that. And I am 1000% obsessed with your coronavirus mixtapes, I must say. (laughs) Um, How do you go about choosing what you put in there? You know, there are a mix of images, videos, TikToks. Is there a method to the madness or is it just sort of like a brain dump?
0: Jeremy, before you answer that question, Nikki and I have been having a vigorous debate about this because I'm a very linear thinker and I'm of the mind that there has to be a rationale for all of those choices and she does not believe that i do not so believe today that. <laughs> you will settle this argument <laughs>
2: I, mean, I really i'm right this. thank you very much <laughs> I'm a gemini. i don't know what your signs are wow. but sometimes there is a rationale and sometimes there isn't
1: uh. i'm a capricorn a she's a virgo did you say you're a gemini yeah. is that what i heard
2: i'm a Gemini. i love that you are both earth signs yeah it, it just depends on the day like there are some days where I'm just like, oh my God, I really am thinking, like, what are my best like videos and TikToks about being a star? Um, because I've just had some conversation with like, like, you know, because I'm I'm in like 17 group chats. <laughs> so I'll have a conversation in my like Moses, Sumney, Kelsey. I'm gonna name drop really quickly. Apple group chat. Moses Sumney, Kelsey Lou, and Tyler Mitchell. That's really lit. Major. I also have a group chat with Devin Diaz, Hari Neff, and Moses Sumney. That's really lit. Moses Sumney is in a lot of group chats of <laughs> mine, and he's always very funny. Um, but there'll be some something that gets sparked in one of those group chats that like will inspire some spiral of mine, and then I might base it on that, or it's just like I'm like, oh fuck, it's been like a couple days, and I haven't posted anything. Uh, what, 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 do I want to, what am I, what excites me today? So I'll just see whatever I've looked at or saved that day and just put all of those things into the thing or like some, some screenshot someone sent me becomes a part of it. Or, um, you know, an image of, uh, from, from a friend's birthday from like 10 years ago, because I know it's their birthday today. We'll jump in. So it just depends. You're both right. That's
1: interesting.
0: I was going to say I was right. Yeah, but but I'm more. (laughs) But I'm also a Capricorn, so you know I'm always right. But I'm also a Virgo, and it sounds like I was more right. But okay, Um, got it. (laughs) 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 Okay, so Jeremy, you've enjoyed a great symbiotic relationship with a number of designers, including Alessandro. Is it Michelle or Michele? Michele. Michele. From Which Gucci. makes
2: it really complicated because one of his right, um, right hands is Michaela, who is a genius and so kind. But I was like so confused when I was in Italy being like, Alessandro Michele, Michaela, Michaela. <laughs> <Exactly.
1: laughs> You're like, uh, M money, yes. that's all you give. That's what I give you now. That's it.
0: <laughs> M money, I love it. Okay, so including Alessandro from Gucci and Tom Brown, what do they understand about how you want to show up in the world?
2: I mean, I think that they both understand me as, um, you know, one one time Alessandra sent me this really gorgeous image of um of uh, the of a pair of socks that Oscar Wilde was wearing, and um, I think and and it really excited me. He's like, I see you in these, mm. and I got really exhilarated by that because it 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 told me that he knew innately that like i aspire towards the great literary dandies that have like come before me yeah. the male and female dandies right and i mean again i know the dandy is a gender term but like in my mind i see zora Neale hurston as a dandy whenever she would like you know put on a little pillbox hat and like a fancy fur um right after she's just been traversing through the south within like full-on menswear, you know, interviewing, like, the last slave that was alive, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, And so that's something that I think that Alessandra really gets is that I I love a a bit of camp and kitsch and, like, um, joy and that pop of color I talked about on Sunday mornings. And then I think the thing that, like, Tom really gets about me is that, like, I love being snatched. Like, I love looking like a (laughs) snatch. snack. (laughs) Wait, um, wait, (laughs) say that again.
0: You love looking like a what?
2: A snatched snack.
0: I love it. I love it. it. I love Um, it.
2: Who also isn't afraid to be like, you know, um, cute and a bit of like a Cher Horowitz, right? Like, I think some of my best skirts have been like gifts from Tom Brown um, that like, I know they gave no other boy, right? It's just been like, um, a great skirt look that, like, I've gotten to wander around with. I mean, if you, they're 20.
1: We did the football game together, yeah, right? And game. you were wearing a skirt when you were yeah. cheerleading. And yeah. I think
2: that, like, you know, they, they they all seem to really love my legs at Tom Brown, which is really nice. Um, and, you know, through that relationship with Tom Brown, I also was able to become really close with, you know, other, like some, with, with another designer that's really understands me and understands a certain thing about my style. And that's, uh, Daniel Roseberry, who started at Tom Brown and he's at Scaparelli now. And he's another person who's sort of like, um, been able to, uh, see a part of me, a sort of tenderness and softness that I hide more often. Mm-hmm. And that he's been able to bring out in some of the things, um, we've been, uh, cooking up together. A regality. Sort of That's soft interesting. You said, a oh, soft I love
0: that. You said you know, a it's interesting. soft regality. Yes. Oh, I love that. Yes, beautiful.
1: Yeah, you know, um, your style has been called gender agnostic and you seem as comfortable in a three-piece suit as you are in a skirt. But how would you describe your own personal style?
2: I, I think that gender agnostic is such a great um, way of thinking about it. But I think that I, I wear the clothes that best fit me. And so I think that there is no um, gender attached to that. There is no, um, there's very, there's not really a palette attached to that. I, I mean, I thought for a long time that all black made no sense for me. Um, but like, you know, when you see my, my Tony look, if the Tony's ever happened, um, you'll see that I've discovered like, you know, a real power in wearing all black um, with a, and again, gold was something else I was afraid of. I was like, gold, never. And Wait, I, why
0: why gold? Why why were you afraid of gold? I
2: think that like, I was just, I think mainly it was because I couldn't afford jewelry for so long. So I decided to make an aesthetic point that I didn't like jewelry, you know, that I didn't wear jewelry. Um, because when I was given necklaces that were worth something, but my friend Isabella Summers, who's in Florence and the Machine, gave me a really gorgeous necklace one time. She loves gold. And I just, like, coveted it. Like, I put it in a little box and I hid it away and I never wore it um, because I didn't want to lose it and then um, not be able to afford to buy another one, you know? Um, but I think that um, recently, it's now that I'm dating someone who's a big gold fanatic, um, I've started to discover gold is something that does look really good on me, and like that is a part of my aesthetic. Um, and as you see on
1: that skin, of course, it yeah.
2: pops. Yeah. beautiful. So I just didn't know, and so it's been um, it's been a great recent discovery.
0: Um, you said something in a recent interview that struck me is very interesting. It's sort of a formula or one of the formulas you have for dressing, and it involves how your hair is styled and. If you're rocking cornrows, it's one look. And if the hair is out, it's another look. And it's femme on top, masculine on bottom. Can you talk to us more about that? Because I was just riveted by that entire back and forth.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's just a natural thing that sort of happens sometimes where it's like, you know, if I'm doing a uh, like long, long braids that like, you know, come down to my waist, which is like one of my favorite, things to do with my hair it's so much fun um my best friend erica and i created a web series and one of our sketches was that we wanted to wear um solange box braids and wander off into the sunset one day and that's when we know we've made it (laughs) (laughs) as soon as i had the money to like pay for like you know solange box braids i i did it and um i realized that like in that moment when I was, when my hair was like that and I I had this like wildly femme aesthetic, all I wanted to do was be like a lipstick Les in a suit, you know, Um, like became really fun. And I think that um, projecting different uh, sort of gender expressions inside of uh, how I maneuver through the world is my own sense of protection, you know, because Oftentimes, clothes tell a new story about you—a um, mm-hmm. story in, that contrasts um, the 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 bodies you're born into, the the ways in which your um, your the, the ways in which your genes have like told one story. You can complicate that with the clothes that you put on your back, which I think is a big reason why, for so many African American people in America, um, this dressing in your Sunday best became this great armor, right against Um, being a a story being written on your body that was at odds with the story you wanted to tell about yourself, you know?
0: And oftentimes, because historically that story had always been so negative, on Sundays you could redefine that story and the sort of the power that you gleaned from that one day of the week would carry you through the week. 100
2: and that was what i grew up witnessing right and again the relationship we have to those stories are fraught and complicated and we should constantly be interrogating them all the time but i think that again thinking about the fact that i walk through the world generally as a like a femme of center masculine person right um there have there there are ways in which i uh, armor myself against certain violences that might come my way, both consciously mm. and unconsciously. Um, and some, and now that I feel like I have a greater sense of structural protection around me in some ways um, that comes from class, um, I now can play into and play against those things as well at my whim. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, can we talk about your collection for Essence? Yes, please. Okay. I would love to. So you've said that you wanted to make clothes that felt like something a writer would wear while at work. Why was it important for you to center the writer and what do you like to wear when you're writing?
2: So I, um, I felt like when I stepped out onto the scene um, as a playwright, um, there was a lot of confusion in one, spe- one sector of the world about what I was doing. And that sector was a sector I like, you know, decided I wanted to make my profession. And, you know, there were podcasts and, like, theater write-ups that sort of dismissed me because I liked fashion and because so much fashion press had been written about me. And people ignored the fact that that was an active choice I was making Mm. to put myself in a lineage of writers who had audiences outside of just the theater world, right? Right. Um, Because I was starting to see... Um, that the theater world that I was inheriting from Gen Xers and baby boomers was one that um, privileged people who could afford to see the theater and only liked seeing the theater on their weekdays. And most of the people in my community had no theater knowledge and had no idea that there was someone making plays that might speak to them in a different way than an Arthur Miller or an August Wilson play might, Mm -hmm, you know?
0: mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. So I wanted, I made an active decision to reach out to my friends in the fashion and uh, music and art worlds and say, hey, can I write something about what's going on in your world? And maybe you'll write something about what I'm doing, like later. And they were like, absolutely. It's so cool. We don't know a playwright. And so when I started doing that, I thought that everyone would be excited about the fact that a playwright was once again moving through the world like Beckett did when he had his Gucci bag. And like when, or like how James Baldwin did when he would go on late night TV wearing Burberry. Yep. And yet there seemed to be this confusion about what my intentions were. People would say things like, is Jeremy a an influencer or a playwright? And I'm like, I thought all playwrights were influencers. They influence the culture. That's right. That's the point. That's you know, like, and I, and I also don't know that I need to think that like a quote unquote influencer is a lesser position in the world um, because there isn't um, a, a sort of articulated intellectualism around what they do. Because I think that a quiet intellectual intellectualism around style and around fashion is something that is even harder to, um, to, uh, sort of, um, protect and curate because people are, uh, people are, can write it off just by looking at it. It's like someone who actually doesn't have style, you can tell immediately. That's right. uh, They can't talk themselves into having good style. You just, or you don't. And so I wanted to remind both people in the theater world and people in the art world, And the fashion world, that I'm not some unicorn, that I'm actually in a tradition of people. So I wanted to think about um, writers who I thought were celebrated for the clothes they wore and how they wandered, walked through the world. So that was um, Bruce Nugent or um, uh, James Baldwin, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, Alice Childress, Langston Hughes. Like when you see his photographs, you're like, wow, like that's, you know, he's a Stunning creature. Sam Shepard is another one. Um, and Mishima is like, you know, he's my God. I mean, he's sitting right here. Um, I mean, I feel like if Mishima was around today, he'd be a uh, fit of the week every
1: week. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> Throwing fits, getting his fits off. <laughs> <laughs>
0: fit of the week. I mean, Nikki was going to ask you that question about the writers on your mood board for this collection, but you've already gotten there. And I know that uh, we mentioned Carl Van Becten earlier um, as one of the inspirations for the prints in this work as well. Um, You're talking, we've mentioned a a number of writers who have passed, but who is the best dressed living writer that you know?
2: Oh, this one gets me in so much trouble. I mean, well, I, let's I, get into I, some
0: trouble then. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I mean, I actually, so someone whose style I really love because it's so idiosyncratic and something you can't be taught is uh, the style of, of, of um, Lynn Nottage. Like Lynn Nottage has like the sort of bohemian, uh, like Brooklyn auntie style. And like, and I say auntie with as much love and mm-hmm. compassion, mm-hmm. like, any, like, uh, Caribbean or Indian person might say it, Um, because she is, like, the bee's knees to me. Like, she has these wood earrings, and, you know, um, everything is sort of, like, perfectly um, accentuated color-wise. So I think she's one of the best-dressed writers in the world. I mean, Hilton Owls, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's... It's hard to touch that man when it comes to uh, showing up and dressing, dressing both for for um, your age and for the ages. Um, mm. I'm really in awe of him. Um, the internet told me once that Denai Guerrera uh, was someone I had ignored, and I was like, "Well, no, I just feel, and I feel like people will be able to write me off about this as soon as I start acting more." Um, but like, she's an actress as well. So it's harder for me to put her first as like playwright, because you know like uh actors on major t v shows get different looks than people who just write plays mm. um they they have they have more to choose from, but Denai is very well dressed and a phenomenal playwright and if I had to think of anyone else um i you know this person isn't a playwright per se, but they're a theater maker. And I think that she's like the perfect Colin Estrada, Batsheba model. Mm-hmm. And that Tina Satter.
1: Why Tina Satter? Tina
2: Satter has the sort of, um, I think if anyone could be called the sort of Parker Posey of the theater world, it is mm-hmm. Tina Satter. Um, because she is... Effortlessly glam, uh, unafraid to be girly um, in a world that tells women that in order to be taken seriously, they have to dress a certain way. She doesn't. Um, she doesn't engage with that. She wears a scrunchie to work. She like you know um, wears pink and purples and fun colors. And in um, her like wild red hair, it's all so curly and big. Um, I just see so much joy in everything she's wearing. Um, so Tina Satter is another one of my style icons. Oh, I you
0: love You know, that. Jeremy, you were working on a play while designing your collection and snippets of monologue from the play are literally written on the garments. Uh, you're rocking a hoodie today that uh, yes. has some of the language from the monologue
2: uh, Two. too. Um, So actually, I think this was like something that was maybe not as articulated as I wanted it to be through no one's fault, but perhaps my own. Um, But the actual collection is a play.
0: Oh. Tell me everything. Yes, break it down for us. Yes.
2: So every piece in the collection is um, one line of a 15-line play that, that tells its own story that the that if one gets every piece, or if they just get the bag, they will they will know. And so ostensibly the story is of um, it's a monologue about individuating. And if one reads the entire thing out, um, it it tells the story of how I came in this sort of like auto fiction way, um, a person that shed off my desire to blend i murdered that boy who wanted to blend um or as a boy i murdered that desire to blend in um in order to fashion myself like my idols people who had you know like you know suffered on their knees to write spunk which is um uh Zora Neale Hurston. um or in like you know i made i made um altars to my idols um which is what this the sweatshirt is the greatest altar to adrian kennedy my favorite playwright who i literally have a photograph of
0: yes
2: um her at 89 on her ipad which her um grandkids gave her she wrote her her newest play he brought her heart back in a box and i saw that play and it changed my life Mm. and so i wanted to remind people that like you know we need to uh, take care of and give flowers to and praise um the authors that inspire us even while they're alive. Um like you know because you never know where they might go. I mean I see your altered to Akara right behind you. She is
1: absolutely
2: and um and I think that for you know an avant-garde black female playwright who um has been doing the most exciting work in the country since the 70s um to be as unknown as she is, is a crime. It's a major crime. So part, a big part of this was like me writing a love letter to the writers like that. And specifically, um, an offering up to a woman who is still alive in Virginia, writing daily, sending me 15 emails a week saying, thank you so much for saying my name, but please stop saying it.
0: Um. (laughs) why doesn't she want that visibility?
2: I mean, she both does and doesn't. It's a it's a really um, beautiful thing about her, which is that um, she knows her worth and she knows that she should be known more. But she's also worked very hard to maintain autonomy over her work, hmm. and with that autonomy has come privacy. And she really values her privacy as well.
0: She's definitely is a living legend, and she's won every major award in the industry. So, but it is nice to have your people of your generation recognize her and exalter in that way. Um, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but I just want to sort of hit this point specifically. Um, some dialogue from this play was even written in the pocket lining of pants. Yes. Um, tell us why you chose to marry the written word and fashion in that way, because there's something you've said that was exceptional about the idea of having words on your skin.
2: Yes, I think that again, thinking I thought a lot about that idea that um, our clothes tell a story about us Um, that's at odds with the bodies that we were born into or the genes that we inherited. And I wanted to um, have people more conscious of that story that was right, being written on their body and to be very aware of the story I wrote on their body. And so I wanted it to be that when you, um, and I wanted all of the language, not to just to live like um, it does on most graphic tees in a sort of passive way. I wanted it to be like an active um, disruptor. When you touch the etching on this sweatshirt, it like you feel it, like it burrows into your skin a bit. When you slide your hands into the pocket, it like rubs against it and it makes you aware of yourself and aware of those words. And so I thought that perhaps it would be a new way to think about um, what we're wearing and why it's important to think about the stories our clothes are telling us so that they don't just become objects we collect and discard, but that they actually might become things that enrich us or that or that we can think more about how they are already things that enrich us and not just these disposable bags that we put over our legs to like keep them warm.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, Jeremy, I want to hear more um, about your style when you were a kid, you know, what's that one piece that you had to have when you were a child?
2: Um, so again, I mean, I think that like growing up, um, I made, we had to choose what was important to us, right? Um, and I think that as a child, what I had to choose was that my mom would be in charge of my clothes and I would be in charge of my books. So my books mm. were the most important thing to me. Really? Um, and yeah, 100 As a kid? As a kid. I mean, I was a real bookaholic. Um, mm. And I um, sort of, allowed myself to sacrifice other things that would have been important to make sure that I had a library that was like worth my time. But I do think that there were certain things that I was covetous of in my closet. And I was always covetous of, like fine suits. Like I remember begging for like a one good suit, like every two years, i was just like, I need this. Cause I also kept growing very fast, right? Mm-hmm. Which is another reason why I couldn't become um, a kid that was obsessed with shoes or obsessed with clothes or the nicest shoes, or the nicest clothes. Cause I wouldn't be able to get them in any time frame that allowed me to um, feel like it was worth the $150 it cost to buy that pair of shoes. So, um, because you
0: would outgrow them so quickly,
2: yes, got you.
0: And because you're like well, well over six feet tall, right?
2: Yeah, like six five, got you. And that was the thing that we knew was going to happen because my uncle's six ten, um, my grandmother's six three. Like, I'm from a tall, tall family.
1: Wow, Wow. okay, yeah. How has being that tall sort of affected your or or I guess influenced your style, having those those long legs that Tom Brown loves?
2: (laughs) Well, I think younger. Um, I wanted to make myself smaller. I was always trying to figure out how I could be like this, you know, but mm-hmm. stand up straight, stand up straight, which is like not unique to me. That's a very normal thing for most tall people to go through. And I think that when I finally realized that like my height was not something I could hide, um and that it wasn't something I should be ashamed of and I think that a lot of that shame came from people articulating what my height meant like and a lot of that was just like oh you play basketball you play basketball oh what are you doing here you play basketball and I think that like I was you know especially because I was the first black kid to go to my school um that wasn't on the basketball team I was very oh. like uh I'm not a basketball player. I'm here for academics. Like, what are you talking about? You know, it was like a big thing for me. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that once I realized that like height didn't, I didn't have to let other people write a story about me because of my height, Um, but that also I could use that height to demand um, space that was being denied to me in other ways. Mm -hmm. Um, I started to really lean into how clothing that like, wasn't afraid of, um, being loud could accentuate that as well. They like, could it allow me to get more, um, attention, which again was for the best and the, it had the best and the worst outcomes possible, you know? Um, <laughs> How so? <laughs> I mean, again, like you invite violence or ridicule the minute that you are, um, no longer invisible. Right. Oh, and so when you make your, and when someone feels like you are Actively trying to be visible, it 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 creates even more ire. Um, but I think it was you know given where I am now in my position now, it like, <laughs> it, yeah. like um, it obviously uh, bolstered me for a life of demanding visibility. Um, but Jeremy,
0: and- I just want to like were, were you beaten up for your style choices
2: or was oh it- all the time? Like really? not in school, it was a cousin's thing in the beat up
1: situation.
2: And that was because like, not only did I demand demand attention, but I was also sort of like, you know, when you grow up like smart and gay and black in the South, no one wants to say that you're gay on the, like no parent or aunt or uncle wants to say that you're gay. If they want to celebrate you, they say like, you should be a pastor. Not a pastor, not a pastor. It's always the first thing they say. I mean, if you can't sing, it's pastor, right? So. Because, wow. And because I had that, you know, my my family put me on a pedestal. And was like, Jeremy's going to be a pastor. He's going to be a lawyer. He's going to be this. And mm-hmm. why can't y'all be more like Jeremy and blah, blah, blah. And so not only was I making myself known by the outfits I was wearing and how tall I was and all of these other factors I couldn't necessarily control because I was figuring my life out. The adults were putting me on these weird pedestals that, in their own way, diminished everyone around me, mm. and because that was my only power inside of those spaces, because I didn't have any physical power, <laughs> um, I leaned into it because kids are fucking evil, you know. So I'd be like, well, you know, maybe your dad would say that about you if, and then it would, be like,
0: <laughs> <laughs> if he was around. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you're like. <laughs>
2: And like, you know, and I always had to be smart amount. You know, I was, you know, definitely the kind of kid who was like, you know, well, I talk well. And so therefore, blah, blah. And again, like internalized anti blackness, like, you know, mm-hmm. really that were like part of my armor against um what I felt was like homophobic violence or you know other things that I couldn't really control. I didn't know how to we know we had no language for all the ways we were violent to each other as children. Um so that was where I was beat up the most. But in school, um it was it was mainly ridicule or ostracization. Like I was ostracized a lot um in spaces because again I was at like you know not only was I ostracized in my of family because I was an alien who sort of relished being an alien because everyone said being an alien meant that I was going to go far in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I also was ostracized in my school because I was black, which immediately made me an alien. I was also poor, which made me even like an even uglier alien. And, um, so I, I had to like, you know, figure out how to either like, get power from being an alien or shrink. And I decided to find power in my otherness until I started reading better books about, you know, queer theory and black studies and like also got more language to like figure out why I felt the way I felt and why I wasn't an alien.
0: You are an alien, but you're the most amazing alien. And that's a wonderful thing. (laughs) Um, You know, speaking of aliens, um, is it true that a professor once asked you to tone down your style because he was afraid that it would distract from your work?
2: Oh, yes. That happened. That happened. Literally the second year, the first day of my second year at Yale School of Drama.
0: I mean, I would imagine that must have been incredibly frustrating for you because it's so clear that clo- clothing is as important a form of self-expression for you as the written word.
2: Yes. I mean, it was a really... Because, you know, again, most, most things that... Um, most of the, mo- the most violent things that are told to you under pedagogical stru- structures are um, like capped as compliments, right? It's like you know, it's the things like you're smart for a black kid, or like you're the smartest, mm-hmm. blah, 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 you know, um, you're smart for a you'd girl. You'd be pretty.
0: You'd be pretty if you'd lose some weight, yes. something like that, yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. It's like I love your hair, but maybe it's like we could pull it back yes. a
0: little bit. Or, or my favorite, you're pretty for a dark skinned girl. Oh, <sighs>
2: yep. Vi- yeah. yeah. Violent. Um, <laughs> vile, and violent. I have yeah. a, a there, there's an offline um, uh, sort of tweet we need to talk about that uh, someone said that got leaked the other day that we have to talk about. But um, anyway, I, uh, I was, there was a professor who I was really fond of and who was quite fond of me, I think, who decided to give me some helpful advice. And he took me aside and he was like, Jeremy, Sometimes I see you and I worry that if you keep dressing the way you do, that people will write you off because they won't know immediately how intelligent you are because they'll see all of this and think that it's you making up for the fact that you don't have anything to offer when I know it's the opposite. So maybe you should think about that before you enter the professional world. And this is because at every year there is a, um, there's a cookout at the dean's house, like the first day of school. Like everyone goes to this big assembly, then all of the student body goes to this cookout. And they like, sort of like, it's like the welcoming party. And the first year, I showed up in salmon pink um, uh, silk pajamas and um, no shoes on with a um, uh, uh, baby's breath in my hair. And it was like, it was a moment, right? Because I I'm wanted- I'm
0: obsessed mm-hmm. with that look. I want to recreate it tomorrow.
2: (laughs) And then it started a trend where everyone was like, this is the, like, that cookout is the day we all dress up. It is like we are at the, like, Kentucky Derby or the Met Gala. And so the next year I wore a, what did I wear that year? I think that was the year I wore the Tom Brown. um, I think I wore the Tom Brown, uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, Wetsuit. I think that was the year I did that. Maybe that was third year, but it was, it was something that was as expressive as that. And, um, he saw it and was was just like, no, like, (laughs) and also everyone else. And and I felt crazy because everyone else was walking around in like wild outfits and like, you know, really turning looks that year. And I was like, what? the fuck like why is this me and this is you know again after you know also having a black professor tell me that sometimes when I smile um it or this is the same year that a black professor told me that um sometimes when I receive notes I look like I think I'm smarter than the primarily white people who are giving me notes and that's why they're so cruel to me so perhaps I should work on my face when I'm getting notes
0: are you serious
2: yes
1: no one can see our faces right now, but when I tell you, <laughs> I
0: am shocked. Yes, shocked. I, I don't. I, yeah, I, I, like what does that yeah. even and how mean? do you? How are you We're, supposed to take what? that in? And what are you supposed to do with that once you do take that in?
2: Yeah, I mean, what all I said was, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know how to fix my face when someone's giving me notes because it shouldn't be my, um, the onus shouldn't be on me to protect their feelings when they're giving me intense notes. Like, mm-hmm. if some, like, if they can't understand after all of these equity, diversity, and inclusion classes that they're taking, that perhaps I'm processing their notes through the lens of their race, their gender, and their class, and making sense of what those mean in regards to my race, my gender, and my class, then like, I don't know what to tell them. Because obviously, these people are in stations in their life that I aspire to be in. So I obviously don't think that I'm smarter than them. I might just think like, wait, do they not get that because this, am I fucking this up or, or do they not get it because they're just white or they're rich or they're, you know, and it's not me thinking I'm smarter than them. It's me thinking maybe I have a different input on this and how can I make sure that input makes sense. I'm thinking about five. that I could just be thinking of, Oh, did I turn off the water that day? I need to call my mom back. Um, And again, I don't know why that should be on the onus of a young black student to to fix their face um, around, you know, people who are in their 40s to 60s. But, you know, that again and again, like I said, this is a black professor, I think, attempting to help me navigate um, treacherous waters that they had navigated. And they were doing it the best way they could. And we all commit violences um, oftentimes uh, with the good of you know, everyone at the front of our minds, forgetting that um, there's another human there. And so we can't think about like, sort of like monolithic structures that we, and and how we navigate them. We need to just think about how we need to take care of the person in front of us. But yeah, it was a weird, like my time in the two different theater conservatories I've gone to have all been wrought with those types of microaggressions.
0: Well, you obviously got the last laugh. Can we talk about Slave Play?
2: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I think it's time.
0: I think it's time. 12? Was it 12 Tony noms? Is that?
2: It was 12, right?
0: I think it was 12, like 10 plus two. Yes. Like and like that's six the plus most. six. <laughs> <laughs> right? Like fourteen minus yes. two. Twelve. <laughs> Nine okay. Plus three. Nine plus three. Okay. Just making sure. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Jeremy, how does it feel
1: to be, you know, the hottest playwright in the world right now?
2: I mean, I don't know that I'm the hottest playwright in the world right you now. Are. But I definitely- <laughs> <laughs>
0: I said it, I said what I said. You need to go back to Yale and ask your professors how they feel when they heard about that. I'm taking notes on your face right now and your reaction. That's the question that we need to ask. to my 12 Tony nominations. I'm looking at how that news is registering on your face right now.
2: (laughs) I got a very nice email from the dean of the school. Mm -hmm. um, And I got a very nice email from uh or got a very nice text message from a playwriting professor um but most other people at the school have not said anything to me and that's fine um the dean and his wife said very kind things though um so um
0: well the world has had very 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 nice things to say about slave play nikki Mm. and i saw it on Broadway and we were absolutely blown away by this work. I mean, the New York Times called your play one of the best and most provocative new works to show up on Broadway in years, facts upon facts upon facts and nominated for a record 12 Tony nominations. Just take us back to the day when you heard that your play, something that you had clearly poured every part of your being, every fiber of your soul into, was nominated for that many Tonys, and where were you when you received that news?
2: Um, so I was in Naples, Italy. Um, yes, I, I know. I love that. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I no. I had that job doing the thing with Gucci, so I was in Europe um, waiting for that thing, quarantining, and um, we had driven down to Naples and were, uh, and I knew I wanted to be um, like you know, on the phone with my mom and my nieces and nephew, um, while the nominations were happening, but I called my producers and my director and I was like, can we get everyone on the phone? Because we waited so long for this. Um, and I feel like the thing we want to happen is definitely not going to happen. So we, what we need to do is we need to, um, like get everyone on the phone and just like, like powwow with them and let everyone know that the only award nominations we needed um were the nominations of people and like we're one of the most written about plays i've ever seen on broadway we had more new audiences for our play than any play on broadway like that was like a weird statistic they looked up which is like how many first time ticket buyers saw Slave play and it was like astronomical um and so i was like we have so much to be proud of so let's just do that so we got champagne, we like got on the Zoom like an hour before the nominations came out and we just all gave our little speeches about the process and what had happened. And I just cried and, mm. and everyone cried and it was really lovely. And I hung up, called, called Robert privately and was like, listen, Robert, I've, you know we both know what the T is. We're probably gonna get a best play nomination. If they're crazy, I was like, we will. I was like, you will most likely get a Tony nomination for best director unless they're fucking up. Um, but I don't know what else we we're gonna get, and this fucking sucks. He's like, child, I know, but you know how white people are—they're crazy as hell. <laughs> and I was like, okay. and then I hang up, and then I act. I get a text from a friend that works at a major agency. I'm not gonna out the agency, but before the Tony nominations come out, he texted me and said, "What the fuck." 12 exclamation point. And I was like, that's a weird message. What is I, I thought he was just saying some random thing. And I was like, okay, cool, whatever, dude. Some new
1: slang. Yeah,
2: exactly. So then we started watch- <laughs> <Yeah, exactly. laughs> so start watching, and my jaw was just on the floor, because every time they said a name, I was like, oh my God, Jaquina got a nomination? Yes. Oh my God, Clint got a nomination? Yes. James, Atu, Annie, Shalia? oh my God. And it was just Didi, Gigi. Like I still, to this day, don't understand how it was possible. I'm just so grateful that people saw the work that we did and wanted to recognize every facet of it. Because I know one of the things that scared me and made me nervous is that there'd been so much writing about me, that the bigness and incredibly generative collaboration that had gone on for the last two years with this play on Broadway might not be celebrated. It might just be a celebration of Jeremy O'Harris. And I didn't want that, because I know that the reason the sound hit the way it did was because our sound designer, he got the job the week of tech off-Broadway, because our general designer, her uh, visa ran out. She was about to get deported back to China. So we were freaking out because Trump had like fucked everything up for our play, um, mm. and we last minute had like this designer show up out of nowhere, and I was like, "Okay, here we go, let's try this out." And it wasn't making sense. I was like, and he was like, "Just wait, just bear with me, just bear with me." I was like, "No, no, no, it has to be like this, it has to be like this." He was like, "Jeremy, bear with me, I'm great at my job." And then we got through it. He took every note and. The first day of the first preview, I was like, this is the show. This is the sound. Ooh. And when we Ooh. went to Broadway, I gave him another challenge. I was like, listen, I am, and I told this to every designer. I was like, I am not going to watch tech from the house. I'm going to watch it in the last seat of the balcony because that's the seat I would have if I was coming here. And I want I want everything to make sense from there. And GG, our lighting designer, was like, oh, okay, bet. And she was like like, we're doing greek amphitheater and when i sat on the back Mm. of that that show and this is the thing i can talk about this now because you guys have seen the play so the third act of the play is quite controversial for a lot of people for a lot of reasons um in a lot of ways i feel like this is, is a denial of our lead character's um subjective pov that the third act ostensibly thrust you into. So sound design wise, the entire third act, you're hearing um, the the Rihanna song playing on a loop. So you know we're yes, in You're
0: her hearing work, 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 work. Yes. Work. You yes. know
2: we're in her head. The mm-hmm. minute that that moment happens with her partner at the very end of the play, there's a major lighting decision that happens. One that a lot of people don't notice if they're sitting in the wrong seat, potentially. But a lot of, or, or if they just aren't aware of how lights work. I actually think that's the bigger thing. People who aren't aware of how lights work aren't, aware of what Gigi was doing to your psychology. And the, what was that decision? So she irises, all, she turns out all the lights on the stage, and the only light we see during that like, slavery moment, that like recreation okay. moment, is a light around her face, a box of light around Kanisha's face. You don't see Jim, you just see Kanisha and how she's understanding everything. And that was a specific thing that I wanted to know I could see from the backstage of the, the last seat of the, of the balcony. And you could. And the minute I knew I could see that, I was like, damn, we did it. We have a Broadway show. And, you know, all of the actors in this play have been with the play, ex- except for Jaquina have been with the play since the very beginning of the show. Um, either they were at first readings of it or they were at readings before off-Broadway at the O'Neill And I wanted us all to go to Broadway without celebrities, without stars. And so to see them all getting celebrated in the way they are means the world to me, because it means that it's possible. And it means the next time a young queer Black playwright wants to do their show um, off-Broadway and bring all of their homies along with them to Broadway, they can be like, Slave Play did it, and they all got Tony noms.
1: That's it. Let's talk about the costume design.
2: Oh, Dee Dee. How
1: involved are you in
2: the decisions for the costumes? Well, Dee Dee and I are very close. And, you know, Dee Dee and I had this big, fun, generative argument about what outfit Kanisha Witt wore in the second act of Slave Play. Um, okay. And there was a whole moment where it was like, at one point, she was wearing this off white shirt. At another moment, she was wearing this other sweater that was like yellow. At another moment, she was wearing this like red shirt. And like, this, and like we went through about seven different shirts for that. And every time you're like, what do you think? I'm like, it's wrong. It's wrong. That's the wrong texture. I don't, I don't believe it. Same. And, you know, all of these things are happening in collaboration with the actors, with Day Day, and with, like, you know, Robert. You know, and we're all throwing our things in. And I feel so deeply that... Um, the beauty of having great designers is having them be smarter than you about their jobs. But also another beautiful thing about having great designers is having designers that want to listen to the person who birthed this. And so a lot of the time, I'm not sitting there sketching things out for any of my designers, but I know when something doesn't feel right in my spirit. When a sound is off, I'm like, I don't know why it's off. It just is. When a color is wrong, I'm like, "Mm -mm, I don't buy it. I remember James said to me when um, he went up, went on stage the first time in the first costume he had for um, the character of Dustin. And he was like, he's wearing athleisure, but it's more expensive than this. He was like, this is the thing he cares about is his athleisure. He was like, he would wear Nike or above. He would never wear H and M. And I was like, I agree. You know what I mean? Because That was an actor doing his detective work on his character and knowing what his character wanted. When Atu came to me and was like, this is the wrong watch. I need, a, I need a better watch because he works in business and finance. I was like, wow, he does work in finance. So we went to Day Day and we looked at a bunch of watches together and Day Day is like, it's these three. And I was like, you're right, Day Day. It is these three and my spirit's telling me it's this one in the middle. And she's like, great, that's the one it is. You know? Mm. And then sometimes Rob would be like, it's too distracting. See what that's doing to my life. <laughs> and then we have some other things. <laughs> um, but it's, it, it, I oh, mean, God. I love Living and breathing every aspect of my plays, which is why it's really difficult now. I mean, and again, I'm about to get on a call with CTG, um, thinking about what's going to happen with my plays as they move to other productions.
0: Right, right. Because you you kind of have to let go a bit. You just have yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah, and that's difficult because you you they are your babies. You've literally given birth to them.
2: They're my babies. And who knows what they're going to do? I mean, Japan is doing a production of my play, Daddy. And I just had to write him the, the, the contract. I was like, no blackface at all, please. like Because you never know. <laughs> I don't know what's right? going to happen in Japan. with my play. You um, were so right about
0: that. You were so right about that. But it was, so right
2: <laughs> but it was anxiety yes, inducing.
0: I need that to be in the contract. No blackface, please. <laughs> you know, really quickly, um, I know that We've got to wind down, even though I do want to talk to you for another two hours. But um, you know, one of the things that Nikki and I enjoyed about seeing your play is that we were invited to a special night um, and the theater was all black that evening. Um, historically, Broadway had been an unwelcoming place for black theater goers. Um, and I know that during the run of slave play, you worked hard to address that. I know that um, Some of that was motivated by a triggering conversation that you had with your mother about her feeling like she wouldn't be welcome at your show because of her clothing. Can you talk to us about that and why it was important for you to advocate for having people of color, specifically Black people, on Broadway to watch your work?
2: I mean, it's always been an alienating thing um, to go see a play in any theater, not just in New York, but in the many regions I've seen theater in. And to see that the only other people who generally look like me enjoying the play are the ushers. Mm. Mm -hmm. And to see dynamics that have been around since the turn of the century, um, the turn of the 20th century, um, not be fully displaced yet, except for their one show in February, or maybe their surprise show in December, you know? Because they get that, that Black lady money by doing Regina. Um, there's a playwright um, named Regina Hall, I believe, who wrote a play called Crowns. Like, that's a big December play that people do. It's a great play, but it's about Black women in their hats. Okay. So that'll happen in December often instead of The Christmas Carol. And so to see, like we are, we are cash cows for certain specific months, but not seen as integral members of theater. Has always made me feel crazy because again I don't need know that I need my mom to see only the black plays that are happening in a the theater Definitely. my mom actually thought Fences was boring when I took her to see it she was like I don't want to see this but, you know, <laughs> but my mom would love to see you know I took my mom to see a, a, a play by um Ionesco that um Michael Shannon was in she's like well oh, I love me some Michael Shannon and <laughs> Like into this play with Michael Shannon in it. And I know she'd probably be into a play that had, you know, Lee Schreiber in it because she likes Lee Schreiber. Um, But theater theater (laughs) makers don't advertise or market to you or my mom. Right. They market to the Upper West Side, you know, hardcore theater crowd who knows every Lee Schreiber play because they've been to all of them. And so I really wanted to create a space where my mom didn't feel like there was some rule about how she could see theater, what theater felt like, or when she should see theater. I wanted to say like, theater is ours. We own the theater. Mm-hmm. And how about this for one night, let's just see the whole the th- a theater with just us. Yes. We're just mm-hmm. us in it. And that was also inspired by Kalella, who saw Slave play on Broadway and was like, I loved it, Jeremy, or off Broadway. She's like, I loved it, but my dare to you is the next time I see it, I want to see it with an all-Black audience. Ooh. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to do that, but I'm going to figure it out. And you and, did. And I made the rule. I was like, I'm going to figure it out. We have to do it. And now is the thing that a lot of theaters are doing, which is really exhilarating.
0: It is. Oh, right. Um, you- Hinted at your Tony Award look, uh, have you decided what you're going to wear? Can you give us a scoop right now? I I, I feel like I would
2: give thing. you a scoop, uh-huh. but it would I, I feel like it would ruin everything. Okay. It, it would ruin everything. But it's a really it's it's a really exciting outfit. It's black. Um and I think if you think of princes, it might help you make sense of uh how we're styling it.
0: Okay. Now, when you say princes, you mean royals or prince, the singer? I
2: think I think, I think, think of princes in all senses of royalty and all senses of figures in figures that may not be from like the last 20, 30,000 years. Like, you know, okay. Just think of a lot. But it's a very fun look.
1: Ugh, oh, wow. I can't wait. Right. So, Jeremy, before we let you go, we have one last question. Yes, of course. What's the piece in your closet that means the most to you right now, and why?
2: Um, I've I mean, I talked about this one a lot, but I think it's probably this coat, this Eckhaus Lada coat, um, mainly because it's the first thing I ever bought myself uh, that was, like, expensive, like a real, like, wow, like, I'm buying my first New York winter coat. Like that.
1: And for the audience that's listening, it's like a furry, buttercream sort of color, heavyweight, yeah. lush.
2: It's the Eckhouse Lada Ugg uh, um, collab coat. Um, but I would also say it's probably, the another coat that it might be is my um, bifurcated uh, trench coat from Gucci that was a gift they gave me when I had my off-Broadway premiere of Slave Play. Um, I really love it. It has these anime characters at the very bottom on the right. Um, him. It's stunning. Um, and then I have a couple really phenomenal gifts from uh, my friend Emily Bodie.
1: Oh, I love Emily. She's so sweet.
2: She's so sweet. Um, Her husband designed my office, and this is one of the coats she got me for Christmas. Ooh. And just knowing that I have a friend who makes some of the best clothes I've ever seen, who just gives me things as gifts, is like... um insane and it makes me feel like I'm a part of a tradition of artist collaborators that is rare now. That's great.
1: Is that from her spring collection? Is that spring 2020?
2: Yes.
0: Yeah. It looks great. (laughs) Look at Nikki trying to cop that
1: (laughs) Watch out, Jerry. I'm like, it looks great. I'll be at the (laughs) store shortly, Emily. (laughs) You know me. (laughs) Oh my gosh, this has been such a wonderful, wonderful enriching conversation. So powerful.
2: Thank you. Robert's going to kill me um, because I, I did lie. There, there is one person I can't bump off and that's Robert O'Hara who will beat my ass um, because he is, he and Janixa are the two Pisces directors of my life who will, who like are like my older siblings um, slash like uncles. And uh, he's like my uncle. And um, yeah, I can't, I can't make them mad. <laughs>
0: OK, so what do, wait, what, what, what do you want to say about Robert specifically?
2: Robert is the kindest, most generous, most intelligent human being I've probably ever had the chance to work with. And I could not imagine a better midwife for my first play than him. And to have mm. been able to be in a lineage like he his midwife for his first play was George C. Wolf. I got him. Very few black gay playwrights can say that they are in a lineage where their director was a black gay playwright, and their mentor is black gay playwright, and the next and the person who mentored them and did that was also a black gay playwright, and they all and they both were writer directors as well. So I feel like I got that special juice, that sauce.
0: Yes, they handed you the baton, and you are running, my friend. I hope. Yes. Well, we'll be here watching and we can't wait to see you in person one day soon. Um, yes. I know that uh, you're working on something phenomenal. So we'll talk about that next go
2: around.
1: And we'll see <laughs> you in a group chat, maybe. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right. You, we'll Jeremy. see you. Thank you. Thank
2: you guys so much. Bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Bye. Hosted by Nikki and Lola Ogunaki, this special episode of Well Suited has been brought to you by New York Fashion Week, the shows, Endeavor content, and IMG fashion events.